Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Current guidelines recommend targeted temperature management to prevent hypoxic ischemic brain damage in comatose patients post-cardiac arrest. Targeted temperature management, or therapeutic hypothermia, has become a standard practice in the ICU for patients post-cardiac arrest. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss the results of the recently published TTM2 clinical trial and the current state of evidence for targeted temperature management in the post-cardiac arrest patient. Our guest is Dr. Nicholas Nielsen. Dr. Nielsen is Associate Professor at the Department of Clinical Sciences at Helsingborg Lund University and consulted in anesthesiology and intensive care at Helsingborg Hospital. He did his PhD on induced hypothermia after cardiac arrest with a clinical focus organizing the International Hypothermia Network Registry, now renamed the International Cardiac Arrest Registry, or INTCAR. Dr. Nielsen was the principal investigator for TTM1 and TTM2 clinical trials. We are truly honored to have him on the podcast to discuss this very important topic. Nicholas, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you so much. It's an honor to, to be here. Excellent. Well, I think that before we dive into the TTM2 trial and what it really means for clinicians at the bedside, perhaps we could start with a high-level clinical historical context of where we started in the early 2000s with Haka and Bernard and how that led to a widespread adoption of therapeutic hypothermia, or what we now know as targeted temperature management. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. Uh, do you want me to uh, to elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, just give us your perspective of uh, how we started. And this also, I think, I'm sure, gave you an, an impetus to pursue your PhD in this area as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, the the Bernard trial and the Hacker trial they they came from uh, some observational studies that were performed in in humans, but mainly uh, were an, uh, results uh, of uh, of the animal research that had been done uh, the decades before, uh, and I think the animal uh, research at that time was quite compelling and it indicated that uh, therapeutic hypothermia would be an effective intervention to to mitigate hypoxic ischemic uh, encephalopathy and um, uh, really it was done in in mice and rats and most of the evidence was in the uh, the, when the models were created to to investigate ischemia and hypothermia during the ischemia and immediately after. But then we had a few uh, studies came, coming out, uh, especially Fritz Sturge studies on dogs, where they could also say that uh, delayed cooling the hours after the ischemic event was effective. And, and that led to the observational uh, studies and then to the, these randomized uh, trials. And I think they caught the intensive care society in a period where there were quite a few interventions that came out that were really uh, 
moving the field forward. It was the tight sugar glucose, uh, tight sugar control. It was the uh, Xigris studies, uh, the PRAW studies, and these uh, uh, early uh, corticosteroid uh, sepsis uh, studies, and then uh, the hypothermia study. So it was an era when it was uh, quite um, interesting to be in the intensive care uh, environment, and it was a lot of hope. And uh, I think that caught the interest of of, uh, of the community. And then also, it was the group of patients, the cardiac arrest population, that was um, everyone thought it was uh, a really, really poor prognosis, and it was an kind of a nihilistic um, approach to these patients. Uh, I know that from my hospitals that the, the cardiac arrest patient was really not treated optimally. It was rather informing the relatives that this patient will die and uh, we'll just take care of that. And this, then this happened with these trials coming out and uh, it transformed practice uh, the years after. Absolutely. And I, as you mentioned, it was quite an exciting time, I, I recall being at the be uh, beginning stages of my career in critical care and very rapidly uh, guidelines adopted the positive HACA trial and the Bernard results as evidence for an intervention that we could start doing. There were hypothermia conferences. There was a large um, a consensus conference that I had a opportunity to participate as faculty and that's where the the concept of targeted temperature management emerged and really a lot of energy around this idea of an active intervention that could ameliorate or treat a anoxic brain injury post cardiac arrest and it kind of became the standard right i mean most guidelines in europe and in north america would recommend that at least for out of hospital and VFib or, or, or VTAC arrest that we should be doing um, cooling or targeted temperature management in those patients who did not w wake up. But very quickly also, it got adopted into in-hospital, other rhythms, and, uh, and we kind of continued. So can you set the stage for your first um, trial, TTM1? And what were you thinking? What were you thinking were the holes and how that trial came, came about? And maybe give us a, just a, a short summary of the results and what you found. Yeah, um, actually it, it started already 2002 because in Sweden and in some other Scandinavian countries, there was an initiative to, to perform a randomized controlled trials. Uh, and then these uh, two trials came out in the same issue of New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and with the Hakan and Bernard trial in, in press, uh, the, the group behind the, this randomized trial uh, said, maybe we should uh, start the, to implement the uh, intervention instead. So we had a very rapid spread and implementation in, in Scandinavia in Sweden, in Finland, in uh, uh, Denmark, in Norway. But at the same time, we had some critical voices uh, from the health uh, uh, authorities that we were too fast. And as an answer to that, we started the registry. It was called the Hypothermia Network Registry. And we collected clinical data at that time and um, uh, just to see what would the effect be when 
we implement this in clinical practice. And also, as you said, uh, the indications widened from the initial uh, VFib, uh, VTAC, uh, and cardiac cause to basically all cardiac arrests, uh, unconscious cardiac arrests. So, so we started this registry, and when we started to get a fair number of patients in the registry, we also performed analysis. And a little bit surprising, we could not demonstrate or see that there was an effect of cooling longer or cooling deeper or cooling uh, faster or initiating faster. So there were actually no no real signals. And so we, uh, when we wanted to to study this further and see how could we uh, take uh, TTM or therapeutic hypothermia to a next level? What would the, should we look at duration? Should we look at timing? We realized we couldn't find any signal that was uh, a good start for a trial. And then we went back and started to reassess the, uh, the trials that were behind these recommendations, the Hacker trial, the Bernard trial, the Hachimi Idrisi trial, and other trials. And, and at that time also the grade concept had uh, started to evolve and uh, the, the demands on a randomized trial had increased compared to the 90s and the early 20, uh, uh, early 2000s. And, and with that, we, we started to realize that the evidence behind the, this whole therapy was um, a little bit too thin. And then we wanted to redo the Hawker trial. And that was uh, what I had in my thesis as the, as the, the last uh, piece that was that we should, we should redo the Hawker trial. That was the conclusion really from my thesis. And, um, and um, um, at that time, that was impossible. Um, the, the concept was introduced, everyone believed that this was something that was really good and increased uh, survival and uh, decreased the risk of neurological impairment. So we realized we cannot do this trial. Um, so that was when we started to think of, is there any other way we could do it? And looking at the registry data, we found that uh, the initial temperature for almost all patients coming in was 36 degrees. And then we said, hey, let's just keep that temperature in one group and lower the other to 33. And that was the concept behind the TTM1 trial. And with that design, we could attract a substantial amount of hospitals and and uh, perform that trial in uh, in two yeah. a little bit more than two years between 2010 and 2013 uh, we included almost 1000 patients randomized to 33 and 36 degrees and as many know we uh, could not demonstrate any difference at all between these two two groups and um and that shook uh, the concept of ttm and t uh, therapeutic hypothermia in 2013 when that came out. Yeah, and I think that it really uh, it's very interesting when you look at how that the results of TTM one were interpreted by different groups or, or different clinicians. Right, uh, some people took the adoption that well it doesn't really show that what I was doing 
is, is inferior, so I'll keep doing what I was doing, and they keep doing the 33. Other people felt this was a larger trial and that there might be advantages of not uh, intervening to 33 and trying to keep it at 36, but that still requires active, active interventions. And then I think uh, uh, another camp basically started really having doubts of whether this is really an indication that perhaps, like you said, what we thought was a positive intervention at the end, maybe perhaps had no, no, no clinical benefit from a clinical perspective. How did TTM1 impact the practice in your hospital? Uh, in my hospital, uh, the practice changed uh, the Monday after the presentation. We presented on a Sunday um, and the first cardiac arrest patient that came in the Monday after was uh, treated according to the 36 arm of um, of the TTM1 trial, and, and we continued with 36 for for uh, many years up until the start of the TTM2 trial. But it's it's actually funny because 36 is, as you said, a temperature that needs active intervention, and it's in the sweet spot of shivering. So it's mm. it's actually a, a temperature that's not very clinically easy to apply, I think. Uh, it uh, it requires uh, sedation and anti-shivering therapies. Uh, 33, I think, is easier to keep um, you uh, as you move out of the shivering region. Uh, so 36 was a temperature that we chose because of the possibility of doing the trial and of ethical reasons, but not really from a clinical perspective. So I think that the, uh, we'll come back to the design of the TTM2 trial, but I think that is more to the point and it was really the design that we wanted to have for TTM1, but we could not at that moment. Yeah. But uh, as, as you said, I think it's absolutely so that some thought that, yeah, TTM2, one did not uh, prove that 33 was inferior, so we can continue with 33. Some changed to 36, as we did, and some, maybe I can agree with that, that it is uh, a uh, reasonable way of, uh, of uh, assessing the, the TTM1 trial is that the evidence is not there for the, uh, for the, for, uh, for the, majority of cardiac arrest patients. And with that result, it was okay to uh, not uh, perform any TTM or therapeutic hypothermia. Absolutely. And another, another Nicholas, another important question that had remained a post-TTM1, which was tried to, to answer with Hyperion, was the, the debate or the, the discussion of different rhythms, right? What happens mm -hmm. when you have a V-fib, a VTAC type of arrest, which as we know is most likely originated from a cardiac source. It's most likely to be treatable or has interventions that we do know can make a difference long-term for the, for the origin purpose and may be associated with a lower um, morbidity and mortality versus what happens when people come with non-shockable rhythms, right? A systole PA, which we usually, uh, understand as being more severe or a mechanism that might be more complicated or more prolonged. And can you comment on, on that piece and maybe a little bit of how you interpreted Hyperion, which came, I think, a couple of years after TTM1? Uh, 
Yeah, it's actually quite a few years, uh, 2019 it was published, but uh, it was started just after uh, TTM one was uh, published. And I think it, it was a reasonable uh, move forward. Uh, we had, of course, uh, some uh, non-shockable uh, rhythms also in the TTM one trial, and we had no signal that it would be of benefit of 33 or 36 in that subgroup. So, uh, but based on that, uh, they um, started out with a, the Hyperion trial. And one thing is that I think with the mortality uh, that they have, and they also uh, estimated uh, before the trial started, the trial is a little bit on the um, small side. It's, um, um, I, I think a reasonable size for that trial would have been maybe 3,000 or 4,000 or even more patients uh, because uh, the whole uh, signal that comes from the Hyperion trial is based on very, very few uh, patients. I think it's about 30 patients that are alive and that were followed for neurological follow-up. And the risk of random error in that group is very, very high. So I think that the Hyperion trial should not be regarded as a positive trial in that sense. It's more of a hypothesis generating signal uh, at the most, and that you should before you um, um, before you uh, base your practice on on uh, on, on a trial like that, you, you should demand a much much uh, larger trial uh, with a more robust estimate. Absolutely, and one of the comments that has been brought up uh, regarding Hyperion, as you said. It, when the mortality is very low or very high, it usually mandates a very large number of patients, which in critical care, and especially in these type of, of trials, obviously, is quite challenging. But yeah. what, what, one of the things that I, that, that I have heard often uh, when referred to Hyperion is people have invoked the fragility index of one, which basically I, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that means that if one patient in either group went the other way, the result is a negative result. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's uh, you uh, end up on the other side of the 0 0.0, the magical 0 0.05 uh, p-value. Um, and yeah, and it's actually uh, fewer patients that need to move from one group to the other than there were lost to follow up. And also um, they had, uh, they, uh, uh, they uh, presume that all loss to follow-ups were dead. And if you instead presume that they were alive, uh, the results will also be different and non-significant. So it's, it's balancing exactly on the middle of the scale. And um, I think that um, you should, if you look at the mortality, it's, exactly the same in both groups, but then we have this very, very um, uh, small signal for those uh, that were followed up until 90 days that were the, um, uh, the, 
the time when they evaluated the neurological function. And it's, as we said, just 30 something patients. So, so let's set the stage before we dive into TTM2. So at this point, the, the guidelines, at least in the practice, really are suggesting that if you have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a shockable rhythm, there's evidence to support the use of active intervention at 33 or 36. So at this point now, they're giving clinicians, let's say, the option. And there's emerging um, comments on that the results of the Hyperion trial might be added to that for non-shockable rhythms. Uh, and, and also, people are translating that into in-hospital cardiac, cardiac arrest. So now comes TTM2. So tell us about the hypothesis, how you were thinking about it. Uh, like I mentioned, I, I think before we started, quite a an amazing study in terms of the, the clinical and scientific rigor. And there's a lot of aspects that we can maybe comment on, but just tell us from your perspective as a principal investigator, what was the hypothesis and how things moved forward? Yeah, um, the we, we really wanted to do TTM2 when we started TTM1. So that's, uh, so we had the plan for TTM2 for a long time. We wanted to, redo the HAKA trial. We wanted to take the HAKA trial. We, we considered that as a phase two uh, trial and wanted to do a phase three trial, an adequately sized uh, trial based on, uh, on the same hypothesis that cooling to 33 would be uh, beneficial in terms of mortality and neurological function. So it's also important to realize that the intervention was 33 degrees, and we compared that to what we considered um, standard care, even if you could argue if that was standard care or not at the time when it started. But the intervention group is 33. We wanted to redo the HAKA trial from 2002 and expand it to a larger group and um, in, take it to the standards of a randomized trial so that uh, recent years. Um, so, so the hypothesis this was rapid cooling to 33 improves uh, um, mortality and neurological function uh, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrests with a presumed cardiac or a strictly unknown cause. Um, and uh, when we calculated the the numbers, we wanted to be able to detect a much smaller effect size that had been uh, calculated in earlier trials. So we we aimed at 7.5% absolute risk reduction, which is 15% relative risk reduction. And that gave us uh, almost 2000 patients to, to include. And, and just to have a comment on that size, I think that might be on the still on the lower end of what should be acceptable. I think you have to have trials of that size or even larger to be able to be um, safe and sound and um, sure when you uh, act on the evidence. We've been acting on small trials for so many years and I think that that leads us astray more than it leads us right. But, but that was the the setting when we uh, when we planned the TTM2 trial and the TTM1 trial 
had opened up the possibility and the equipoise situation that it was uh, okay for hospitals and sites to to have a group that did not uh, receive therapeutic hypothermia as we've known it, but only giving it if fever uh, it was detected. And, and I think an important aspect also uh, that a lot of people have commented on is that when you look at the temperature curves of the Haka trial, the control group probably went even higher than just normal thermia in many cases. So perhaps, I mean, that 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 difference was really important in driving those results. But as you said, I mean, numbers are important. And I, I believe that a, a big problem that we've seen, not only in medicine, but has also been described in other scientific uh, fields is our inability to replicate studies that have been adopted as dogma, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that is a problem in social science and, and cognitive studies, but also in clinical science. And I think that if in science, what we do know is that when a hypothesis is really, really strong, it can be replicated in, in different experiments and it always proves that that's the right hypothesis, right? And that's where we're we're lacking a little bit in a lot of a, a clinical in clinical in the clinical arena. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there, and I also think that's a big responsibility for guideline groups because uh, if it's written in the guidelines, it's sometimes difficult to randomize against that guideline, and that was the reason that many uh, countries could not participate in TGM one because. Uh, the ethical committee said, no, this is in guidelines, we cannot uh, allow you to do this. So I think guidelines, guideline groups must uh, acknowledge this and say, to the best of our knowledge, we recommend this, but we do it uh, with the caveat that it might be that we don't have enough evidence and we suggest that uh, you use it, but we also suggest that you could continue to uh, to investigate this issue. I think guidelines should be constructed that way, not to create these dogma situations as you uh, bring up. Absolutely. And Nicholas, so you, you talked about the hypothesis, you, you talked about how you did the power calculation. So tell us about the, the different groups, the, the, the 37 versus the 33 group. I think it's important also, and you'll describe this, that the 37 group did require or did involve a lot of active intervention from clinicians. But tell us about what were the treatments that the, these patients received? Yeah, the 33 arm uh, received that type of cooling that we've been uh, giving to patients in the last uh, 20 years based on the Haka and the Bernard trials, or maybe um, the Haka trial, the Bernard started already in the pre-hospital scene, but the, but the Haka trial, we wanted to get down to 33 as fast as possible. And we wanted to uh, get down to, to, to the low temperatures faster than the Haka trial. So we said that hospitals could use any type of equipment that they wanted to reach the target as soon as possible and then keep the uh, target of 33 stable uh, throughout the intervention period using feedback uh, control devices, either intravascular or surface pads. And then we had a controlled rewarming of 0 0.3 degrees per hour up until we uh, 
re-entered normal thermia in that group. So the whole intervention period was 40 hours. And if you look at the graphs, we, uh, we came down to temperature faster than many trials and very much comparable to uh, modern, uh, modern trials. Um, and we also stretched the intervention period a little bit longer. So if you compare it with the Haka trial, we cooled a bit faster and we cooled a bit longer than the, that trial. And that was the 33 group. And from an academic perspective, it would have been ideal to have an, uh, an arm with no um, TTM or no fever management or anything uh, at all. Uh, that would have been the clean control group as they had in the Haka trial. But again, it was not possible to do that. And I can um, just go to my own hospital or hospitals around uh, my hospital. And um, due to the 20 years of temperature management and also the association between fever and poor outcome. So that's why we had to put in this threshold of fever and if fever started to come to the patient we treated that with TTM systems and that's an important difference between the Haka trial and the TTM2 trial is that we in half of the pa patients in the normothermia group we gave uh, TTM uh, therapy with intravascular or surface control devices to clamp temperatures on normothermia, uh, AMIA 37.5. So that is a difference uh, from, uh, from the earlier trials. And that gives us also a knowledge gap that we don't know if that therapy was uh, beneficial, harmful, or just neutral. And what were the results, the final results of the study? Yeah, again, uh, the uh, results uh, were very, very similar to TTM1, no difference, and with very, very neutral uh, uh, point estimates. So the point estimates in both TTM1 and TTM2 lean a little bit against hypothermia, so it's a little bit better with the normothermia or the 36 arm, but absolutely no significant signal. Uh, so very neutral in all aspects of the trial. Mortality, neurological function, functional outcome, uh, quality of life. Um, and you did find that there were more uh, arrhythmias, right, in the, in the, in the cooling and the, the 33? Yeah, uh, that's really uh, uh, the only significant finding of the TTM2 trial is that from the pre-specified adverse events, we could show that uh, arrhythmia leading to hemodynamic compromise was more common in the 33 group. But uh, if you look at the, uh, the hard endpoints mortality, it did not translate to, uh, to a difference in mortality. So the sites could observe this arrhythmia, but also uh, cope with it and, and hopefully treat it in a way that did, didn't make it affect mortality in the end. 
Absolutely. And and I think, Nicholas, that, that an important uh, also aspect uh, of this discussion before we go into a little bit more of what it means at the practical and uh, at the bedside, uh, if you could comment on some of the um, the methodological uh, interventions that the trial had to really uh, improve its rigor. Uh, one of the things that I read and uh, I, or heard you say in other discussions that I was quite impressed was the fact that the um, obviously you can't, it's hard to blind what's, uh, what's happening to the patient because you know what you're doing, right? But mm -hmm. that all the um, neurological assessment, obviously that could, could traditionally is blinded to people who do that. They don't know what, what intervention they got over time. But also what I, what, I, what I understood, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you uh, had the, the final data blinded and that there were two manuscripts that were written. One um, uh, saying group A is 33 and group B is uh, normal thermia and another manuscript saying group A is normal thermia and group B is 33, just to really try to minimize any bias that, that could have in, in the writing. Uh, could you just comment on those things? Yeah, uh, that's that's absolutely uh, right. Uh, we, it's actually an idea from a Danish uh, trialist called Peter Goetje, who uh, who um, said that a lot of the bias that is introduced in uh, in clinical trials and how they are presented uh, is introduced during the analysis phase and during the writing phase, and I think that is absolutely on the spot because everyone has their own beliefs or thoughts or bias, or it could be unconscious bias or conscious bias. And you want to twist and tweak it a bit and you can include one analysis, but not another one. And um, that will give, even if the results are the same, you can, you can make the nuances in one or the way or the other. So I think it's critical to uh, blind the analysis phase and also the writing phase. And I think that should be done in all, all trials, especially when it comes to clinic, uh, critical care. Um, and it makes you extremely neutral uh, during this phase. Uh, the statisticians didn't know which group was which, and we also took out the temperature data and other data that could uh, unmask the groups. We we separated that uh, from the data uh, management company, so they sent it in portions, so you could not uh, guess which group was which. Um, and and then we wrote uh, draft manuscripts that we presented to the full author groups, and these were, as you said, in duplicate uh, with the groups interchanged. With this trial, uh, with the neutral results, the, the wording was quite similar, but not identical. And it was the same in TTM1, that we had similar uh, wording, but not identical in the two manuscripts. And, and you will always converge towards the more conservative uh, interpretation of everything if you do it with this process also for a neutral manuscript or a neutral trial you will you you must uh, 
you must uh, really, really uh, uh, be conservative and not lead yourself astray. Uh, and I, I think it's a very, very uh, nice and elegant process to to go through. And every author that's part of that, they really, they really, really appreciate it. And I think that the end result is much, uh, uh, much less prone to bias than it would have been otherwise. I agree, and it's important to, to recognize that we all have biases and that they are significantly stronger than we would like to admit. And from that perspective, I think it's a great exercise, like you said, in a in scientific rigor to really approach it this way, because even in a neutral study, it has an impact. But I can only imagine what would have happened if there was a clear signal in one of the groups versus the other, right? How that yeah. that knowing, I mean, can really drive that bias, because we all have biases and that uh, we just don't like to admit it sometimes. The other aspect that that I that I find very interesting and quite important and worth commenting is one of the biggest challenges with these patients in real life, Nicholas, is what do we do afterwards? So it's not so much the first 48 hours that are hard, it's perhaps after after our hour 48, once they're rewarmed or whatever we did and they're not waking up, and how do we prognosticate and how do we talk with families? And you had a very, very strict uh, protocol and standardized approach to really do neuroprognostication and kind of uh, implement any any further uh, interventions or lack of interventions as you supported these patients. Could you comment on that? Yeah, we have been working very closely with uh, uh, the neurology department and the neurophysiology department and radiology throughout the years, especially at Kilmberg and Kisla Lilia in, in Lund uh, have been instrumental in uh, really developing this neuroprognostication and also follow-up protocols for both TTM1 and TTM2. Uh, we were even more conservative in TTM1, but we also learned a lot that we could adopt into TTM2 and be sure that we had a protocol that was very strict and did uh, define those with the uh, ultimate uh, poor prognosis with very, very high confidence, um, almost 100%. Um, and uh, I think that's also very, it's important for the for the families in all aspects of cardiac arrest, uh, not only in trials, but in the clinical trial where we do not have blinded uh, intervention. I think this is also something that must must be done to minimize bias between groups. And that was uh, not done in earlier trials uh, in a systematic way. It was introduced in TTM1, but it's been part of uh, most cardiac arrest trials afterwards. Um, I think we've learned a lot from from these uh, last year trials and that the neurological prognosis or prognostication guidelines have improved a lot. And I think that might have been one of the more important effects of uh, of uh, this research and targeted temperature management because it has focused us on this critical issue in cardiac respect.
emissions. So that's a, a benefit from from having started to look into TTM and therapeutic hypothermia. I think sometimes we, we take very simplistic views at trials as being a negative or a positive trial. Uh, maybe we go a little bit further and we say, well, it's not necessarily negative, it's neutral. But like you said, there's a lot of byproducts of pushing science forward yeah. that ultimately really improve how we care for patients. And it's not one big discovery at a time, but it's small steps moving forward with a lot of effort from a lot of trials, right? That that ultimately mm -hmm. really mold the way we practice. But uh, I think this is a great headway to really the, the 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 question that a lot of our listeners have and those in clinical practice is, um, what should I do at the bedside? How do you interpret, uh, Nicholas, as a clinician and as a scientist, um, the results, uh, not only the results of TTM2, but it's really the aggregate of everything we've discussed so far and how it impacts what we should be doing at the bedside today? Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the, we've seen an improvement in uh, cardiac arrest care. I think most of that is probably due to a better pre-hospital care all over, uh, at least in uh, some countries. Uh, but I think also that we have improved care in the intensive care departments of the critical care department. And that is because we, we uh, we are interested in the patient and we care about the patients and that's it's a little bit sad to realize that you have to have this uh, to to give the patient the best possible care um, it's the Hawthorne effect uh, it's massive if you care if you're there if you stay uh, bedside you will improve of the outcome of the patient. So I think that might be the biggest lesson that you should not give up on cardiac arrest patients. It's, it's a patient group with a, a severe uh, uh, outcome all over, but the outcome for the individual patient might be very, very good. Yeah. And um, um, that is worth recognizing. Um, but as a clinician, I think you, you must be, uh, you have to look into different aspects of the cardiac arrest uh, intensive care period. Um, for the first uh, hours, the for, first 48 hours, I still think we do not know exactly how to uh, best take care of that uh, period in terms of temperature management, in terms of sedation, in terms of mean arterial pressure, in terms of carbon dioxide and oxygen, those trials are ongoing and should go on for years to come uh, to really, really uh, tweak that to the best. It might be that we should not do that much, just support the patient. We don't know. We need to investigate that period more. For the period after, I think that a conservative approach is uh, key. Uh, and if we have this conservative approach and observe the patients a longer period uh, and also uh, register this and study this, we will be able in a few years to, to pinpoint the patients with a very, very pessimistic prognosis with, where we with almost 100% accuracy can say that this patient will not have a good outcome 
we can uh, limit futile care and uh, burden to families, but we can also better identify those with an ultimate good prognosis that initially may look uh, having a poor prognosis. And that might be the most important uh, lesson from, from the recent trials and from the TTM1 trial and also from TTM2 uh, when we have that data ready to with biomarkers, with uh, in uh, radiology investigations, with neurophysiology and bedside uh, clinical uh, neurological examination, you will be able to, to define those that we should extend the observation period and extend care to give them the chance to, um, to wake up after the arrest. I think that might be, the most important uh, lesson for the 48 hours plus uh, of intensive care. Absolutely. And then as a parenthesis, I think that the what happens after intensive care might be as important. Uh, I think it's a group that, at least in Sweden and Scandinavia, we've been poor in taking care of the patients that are uh, sent home after cardiac arrest. I think the rehabilitation process, the and the follow-up uh, process must be much more structured and uh, like in a stroke patient, uh, for instance. No, I agree. And that's an area that in general in critical care, we have just come to really realize and with COVID we're seeing it as well, which is the post-intensive care um, syndrome or care of these patients is uh, needs to be better, needs to be studied, needs to be more systematic, but in particular for this this population, which like you said, has very difficult outcomes for those survivors, having a more systematic and organized standardized approach and studying that is gonna be critical. So you, you mm -hmm. had mentioned, Nicholas, that after TTM1, um, the week after practice had changed at your hospital, how has this TTM2 results impacted practice now? What are you guys doing these days in the first 48 hours? Yeah, we, um, uh, we uh, at the moment, we use the normothermia arm of the TTM2 trial. Uh, so we basically have not changed um, our practice since the trial was ongoing. After the trial, when it was finished, we went back to the 36 protocol, but after the release of the TTM2 results, we uh, adopted the normothermia arm of the trial protocol. So full supportive care, um, sedation according to, to the protocol and um, TTM management if we hit the target of uh, fever 37.8 and then uh, very strict neurological prognostication and uh, recommendations for for continued care or withdrawal of life-sustaining therapies uh, in a conservative manner. So right now we are as if we were in the trial, but just using one arm and not randomizing. But of course we are planning for for a next trial. <laughs> so and, this and, will and be I an interim period. Interim period, of course. And it seems that when you look at the aggregate, right, and, and it's important to, to now mention that when you add TTM1, TTM2, 
the number of patients that have been studied in these trials really outnumbers significantly all the other trials done before, even some people who have argued about non-shockable rhythms. The number of non-shockable rhythms that you have treated in these studies uh, outweighs, I mean, the Hyperion and and maybe we'll see a meta-analysis coming soon. Yeah. But really, yeah, the actually, of, uh, actually, there there is a meta-analysis where they've included them uh, the uh, the um, in not um, they've excluded the in-hospital portion of the Hyperion trial. So just if you look at the out-of-hospital portion of the Hyperion trial, it's very similar to the non-shockable group of TTM2. So for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, if you aggregate aggregate the data from TTM1 to Hyperion, uh, it's quite clear cut that uh, that there is no inconsistency between these trials. They they uh, they point the same direction. The signal from from the Hyperion trial was in the in hospital cardiac arrest group, where we have very limited data all over. Uh, there's just a few hundred patients. It's randomized uh, in in hospital, so there we do not know at all. So, based on what we know, I think it's reasonable to keep normothermia uh, based on TTM one, TTM two, and Hyperion for out of hospital cardiac arrest. For in hospital cardiac arrest, we still await trials. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think is the next big question? Should we? I guess one of the things that you mentioned earlier is the active intervention on fever, is that really something that helps, doesn't help, or is neutral, right? Yeah, uh, I think that's, it's uh, very interesting to to see what people say about fever. Um, we have these data that are observational. There's an association between fever and poor outcome, but if that's just an epiphenomena or if it's, it's causative, no one knows. Uh, if we look at systematic reviews of fever management in general, there is no evidence of uh, benefit of fever management in, in any type of uh, condition, really. And uh, if you look specifically on cardiac arrest patients, we have no data at all to rely on. So I think we need to uh, investigate whether fever management is of benefit for the patients or not. And that should be done before we start a new period of dogma behavior uh, in the critical care community. I think we, we should just realize and be humble and say, we don't know, we need to study this and we um, in a large, large uh, cardiac arrest trial. Absolutely. Well, I think that we can keep talking about these unknowns for, for a long time, but want to be respectful of your time and really appreciate, Nicholas, all the uh, the work your group has done. Really important, important questions, uh, looking with very rigorous science, and we look forward to TTM3, and we'll talk more about that. But before we, we end the, the conversation today, we'd like to ask our, our guest some questions unrelated to the clinical topic uh, to close the podcast. Would that be okay? Yeah, absolutely. So so the first question, Nicholas, relates to books. Uh, are there any books that have influenced you the most or books that you have gifted most often to others? Um, gifted to others. Um, that would be a book uh, uh, 
by a um, British uh, um, biologist, I think he is, uh, Nick Lane. Uh, it's called oxygen, the molecule that made the world. I think that's an incredible story about uh, our origin. Uh, it it's has a few years uh, now. It's from the late 90s or maybe early 2000s, but the history is a million years. So uh, it's a wonderful book. So if you should read one scientific book, I would I would definitely recommend Oxygen by Nick Lane. But, and I, I have not read it, but definitely we'll, we'll look it up and we'll put it in the show notes. And at the end of the day, everything we talk about in critical care is about oxygen, right? So that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful book. But uh, when it comes to fiction, uh, I read a lot of Swedish, Danish, Finnish, uh, but uh, but that may be not um, applicable to the US uh, or the world community. So um, the, uh, if, if I think if I would recommend something in fiction, I would recommend uh, to dive into the classics. Uh, I, I've been doing that quite a lot, and I, I realized that there were very, very good books written in the early 1900s, the late uh, 19th century. Uh, so um, I just finished uh, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. It's, yep. it's a magnific magnificent book, uh, and it's very much uh, it tells a lot about moral and uh, behavior and relationships that's uh, applicable to everyday life today as well. So that's well, that's I, my I tip. Yeah, good book. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting because I um, I was told from a young age, uh, encouraged to read. And I remember that my, my grandfather would always comment that you should always read old books because only the great books get to get old, right? <laughs> It, it, there's a reason yeah. why people are still reading them. <laughs> yeah, so we'll definitely, yeah, we'll definitely yeah, yeah. add those too. Excellent. Um, is there something you believe to be true, Nicholas, in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe or don't behave like they believe? Yeah, I think I've been thinking about that quite a lot, and I think that uh, the that we. I think we should be much more humble uh, towards science and what we know in medicine. I think um, I think that is uh, the key to for us to give better care is that we just tone down uh, our argumentation and start to just uh, encompass that we we don't know and we have to find out and to do that we need to collaborate and um, so I think the whole the whole system the academic system the whole uh, merit system this bibliographic uh, chase that we're all in must change for us to uh, to to move the field forward I think we're a little bit stuck I don't know if that uh, makes sense, but um, that's my feeling that we're uh, we're a little bit um, astray in uh, how we perform science, how we perform medicine based on science. Well, I agree. I think that really speaks to to the need uh, that we have to uh, to always have answers. 
as opposed to having better questions, right? And, and yeah. just being humble and, and recognizing the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't really know anything, right? And just recognizing that and uh, and being more humble about that. I, I agree. And I think that it's played out uh, quite uh, dramatically in the last two years with the pandemic. But I think it just yeah. speaks to the state of science or medicine in general. So that's a, mm -hmm. that's a great point. Absolutely. And the, the, the last question, Nicholas, is what would you want every one of our listeners to know? Could be a quote, a fact, or just a thought on what we discussed today. Hmm. Oh, wow. Um, what comes to my mind is um, yeah, that uh, I think um, size and quality matters. Uh, I, I think that is... Uh, it's really uh, something that I learned from uh, John uh, Ioannidis, uh, California, uh, Stanford uh, professor. Uh, many have read him, uh, but I think what he said about um, we cannot advance medicine with uh, observational papers and uh, and small randomized trials. We we need to we need to take this to a much larger perspective. And it's a little bit uh, relates to what I said in your uh, in relation to your last question. But I, I think that is something that we uh, must uh, realize, all of us, that um, um, yeah. to be able to um, give the best care to the individual patient, we need to observe much larger populations and um, and work on the group estimates. But because I think that is what gives us uh, the best possible uh, therapy for the individual. It's a lot of talk about tailored therapy. And I think that is very, very dangerous because we will never know unless we have a genetic signal or something like that. But for for the main uh, diseases and symptoms or groups of symptoms, uh, I think we need to rely on uh, large groups and the robust estimates based on uh, adequate sample sizes. I agree. And I think that's a perfect place uh, to stop. Uh, Nicholas, thank you so much for all the hard work that your team has done for sharing that knowledge with, with us today in the podcast. We look forward to uh, seeing you in person soon, hopefully in a conference uh, down the road, not too, too distant, and also to having you back to discuss these and other topics. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a, a pleasure, really. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sounds transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.